All right, we are back. That was Best Coast Feeling Okay, by the way. We'll listen a little more later on. Up next, Matthew Walker. He is a PhD, and he is the author of Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. This is a really fascinating book. Uh, I'm going to bring him on right now. Good morning, Dr. Walker. Good morning. This is such a fascinating book about sleep. What made you decide to, to go in this direction and focus this, you know, decide to write a book on this? Well, I've been in the field now for 20 years, and I've just been continually amazed at this global sleep loss epidemic that is underway. And I think sleep has become perhaps the most neglected topic in the health conversation of today. And the very fact that every disease that seems to be killing us in the developed world, um, from cancer, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, obesity, diabetes, all of them have causal and significant links to a lack of sleep. And I think it was that perfect storm of this lack of public conversation together with the hard science and the evidence. It really just left me no option in, in a way to, to start writing that book because there just wasn't a, a manifesto of all of that science out there in a publicly digestible, accessible book. Well, you know, I actually I need to share this. I think from my own experience, I remember the days I was only perhaps getting six hours, which is definitely not enough for me, drinking way too much coffee, and then eating the wrong foods. You break down. You just don't perform your best. That's right. And, you know, I used to say that sleep was the third pillar of good health alongside diet and exercise. And I think I've changed my tune now based on the evidence. Sleep is the foundation on which those two other bastions of health actually sit. It's not as though they're not important. They absolutely are. But each of them will crumble if you're not getting sufficient sleep. So, for example, if you're trying to watch your weight, you're trying to diet, but you're not getting enough sleep, 70% of all the weight that you lose will actually come from muscle and not fat because your body becomes very stingy in giving up its fat when you are underslept. So dieting becomes counterproductive in that sense. Wow, that is really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And you can ask, you know, why is it that, um, you know, the body gives up uh, muscle rather than fat? Um, It's because that the body is desperately holding on to the energy that it needs to try and maintain this state of sleep deprivation. Um, So, you know, it will hold that sort of caloric reserve of fat, and it will let go of muscle, striking. I remember my college days, I wouldn't get enough sleep. I'd run to my 8.30 lecture, and I would reach for something with sugar. And, you know, it just was this terrible cycle of, and I was putting on weight. You just, you don't realize how important sleep is in being focused and being creative and, you know, keeping your weight down. Yeah, well, it's fascinating that you say that, and and the book covers some of of this material, but it's not only that when we are underslept, we actually eat more, which we do. Um, People who are trying to survive on six or five hours of sleep will eat on average about 300 to 400 calories a day more um, than those getting eight hours of sleep. It's not just that you eat more. It's what you eat that also changes. And it's fascinating to hear what you just said, because when you're underslept, you actually start reaching for sugary foods and heavy-hitting carbohydrates. You don't go after the sort of the leafy greens 
and, you know, the protein, the healthy stuff. So you're eating more and you're eating the worst kinds of things when you are underslept. I know now I'm completely different. I mean, I'm a vegetarian and I mean, I, if I don't get enough sleep, I'm like Cinderella. I fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think one of the biggest problems with this sleep loss epidemic is that your subjective sense of how well you're doing without sleep is a miserable predictor of objectively how well you're doing without sleep. Mm -hmm. So I'll commonly hear from people where they say, you know, I'm one of those people who can survive on six hours of sleep a night. It's a little bit like a drunk driver at a bar. You know, they've had six or seven shots. They pick up the car keys and they say, I'm fine to drive. Right. And your response is, no, I know that you think you're fine to drive, but trust me, objectively, you are not fine to drive. And the same is true with sleep deprivation. You don't know you're sleep deprived when you're sleep deprived. Amazing. You have a chapter here that hits home for me. My, fa- my father had colon cancer, plus he had mm-hmm. heart disease, uh, several heart attacks. So you talk about cancer, heart attacks, and a shorter life, sleep deprivation, and the body. Yeah, so every major system within the body is essentially dependent on sleep. Sleep is actually a life support system. And I can just speak to both of those diseases. We know that one night of short sleep will drop anti-cancer fighting immune cells by 70%, which is an alarming state of immune deficiency across just one night of short sleep. And I can also speak about sleep in the cardiovascular system, the the link between short sleep and cardiovascular disease, hypertension, stroke, and uh, heart attacks is very strong. But all it takes is actually one hour because there is a global experiment that is performed on 1.6 billion people twice a year called daylight savings time. Oh, yes. (laughs) And, And what we see is that in the spring, when we lose an hour of sleep, there is a 24% increase in heart attacks. Yet in the fall, when we gain an hour of sleep, there is a 21% decrease in heart attacks. So that's how fragile our bodies are just to that one hour. I mean, most of us think nothing of one hour of lost sleep, but that's the type of damage it can do. That's unbelievable. Just one hour, one hour of sleep. What advice would you give to people that... I have family members that have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep. What's to be done? Yeah, you know? it's, a, it's a real issue. And, and people struggle with sleep for different reasons. But I would say that there are probably five tips for, for good sleep. The first is keep it regular. So go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time, no matter what. Whether it's the weekday or the weekend, just keep it regular. The second is darkness, because we are a dark-deprived society, and you need darkness at night, dim the lights, no computer screens an hour or so before bed. That darkness helps a hormone rise within the brain called melatonin, which helps time your sleep efficiently. The third thing I would suggest is temperature. Keep your bedroom cool. Try to keep it at about... 68 degrees, which is colder than most people uh, would think. The reason is because your body temperature needs to drop to fall asleep normally. So keep it cool to help your body release that temperature and get you to sleep. It's the reason it's always easier to fall asleep in a room that's too cold than too hot. Um, The fourth thing would be abstain from caffeine after about 2 p.m. and 
don't go for the nightcap in terms of alcohol. Alcohol is perhaps one of the most misunderstood drugs. Uh, people think I have a nightcap and I fall asleep faster. Uh, alcohol is a sedative and sedation is not sleep. So what you're doing is simply knocking the brain knocking out. Knocking you out, yes. You're not getting into, the, yeah, into that natural sleep. Alcohol also wakes you up throughout the night, but you tend not to remember those awakenings. So it fragments your sleep so you don't get deep, healthy sleep. And it also blocks your dream sleep or your rapid eye movement sleep as well. So those would be four tips. The final thing is something that I think many people um, aren't aware of, which is don't stay in bed awake. So oh. if you're having difficulty falling asleep or you've woken up and you're still asleep and you can't get back, after 15 or 20 minutes, get out of bed, go to a different room, and with dim light, just read a book and only come back to bed when you're sleepy. And the reason is this, that your brain is a wonderfully associative device. So if you lie in bed awake, it learns the association with being in bed equals being awake. And, you know, I think a lot of people will tell me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting watching television, I'm falling asleep, then I get into bed and I'm wide awake and I don't understand why. Right. But then you get anxious so and you're like, why can't I sleep? Yeah. Why can't I sleep? My stepmother, uh, I was visiting her and she uh, had fallen asleep and she woke up at 1030 and she was wide awake. She says, come on, let's play cards. <laughs> so she plays <laughs> cards. She beats me. She goes back to bed. Because she knows she's not going to just lie there in bed. That's right. And so what she's doing, she's only going to go back to bed when she's sleepy. So what happens is that the brain then relearns the association with the bedroom being about sleep rather than being about wake. Um, I would also note, by the way, that meditation seems to help. Um, the evidence is very scientific and quite strong now. And I was very skeptical about this. And I started trying meditation as a hard-nosed scientist. That was five months ago, and I'm, I'm still doing it occasionally whenever I, I have a, a difficult night of sleep, and, and it does seem to help as well. That's great. I do have a house rule. I don't let my kids have their phones in the room uh, because all that stimulation, your brain's all over the place, and the light. And so last night my daughter said, I think it's really great that you don't allow us to have a phone in our room. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you are doing your children an incredible service. Um, and I'm, I'm being utterly serious because Thank you. the invasion of technology into the bedroom um, has been a problem. I think technology will help us as well. I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. I think technology will in the future be a wonderful force for good in terms of sleep. But right now with these gadgets, it causes what we call sleep procrastination, which is that you're lying in bed. You could easily fall asleep, but you're there on your phone sending the last email, checking Facebook. Um, the light from the screen, the blue LED light, damages your melatonin levels, which is a hormone, as I said, that helps rise and time your sleep, and it blocks the melatonin, which is bad for your sleep. It also causes anxiety, such that throughout the night, there's this sort of heightened level psychologically, which keeps you out of the deeper stages of sleep. Even though you may still be asleep, you're not getting that deep sleep because of that psychological anchor. Right. Now, let's say you're a person that takes Ambien. A lot of people take Ambien. What is your opinion on, can people actually get a good night's sleep without that by learning new techniques? They can, and the book goes into this in detail because I don't think the public is aware of the, the science behind sleeping pills. Unfortunately, no drugs that we have now produce naturalistic sleep. 
And Ambien and other drugs like it are a class of drugs, again, called the sedative hypnotics. So here again, you're just sedating your brain. You're not getting into naturalistic sleep. We also know, however, and this is the perhaps alarming evidence in the book, that sleeping pills are associated with a significantly higher risk of death as well as cancer. Now, we don't know yet if that is a causal relationship or just correlational, but I think the public has not been informed about that, and I want to give them that information, and then at least they can make an informed choice and decision on their own. There are alternatives, and the book speaks about this too. There is a non-drug approach called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI for initials. And you work with a therapist for a couple of weeks, and it is just as effective as sleeping pills in the short term. But what's better is that when you stop working with a therapist, you continue to get that sleep benefit. Whereas if you stop taking sleeping pills, not only do you tend to go back to the bad sleep that you had, your sleep can often be worse. It's called rebound insomnia when you're taking those sleeping drugs. So there are alternatives out there, and the American College of Physicians recently made a landmark recommendation, which is that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia must be the first-line treatment for insomnia, not sleeping pills. Now, if people want to get in touch with you or find you on social media, are you out there? I am out there indeed. Uh, If they just search for me, Matthew Walker and Why We Sleep, they will find me, they will find the book. I'm also out there on social media as Sleep Diplomat, all one word. Yes, because you are the director of UC Berkeley's Sleep and Neuroimaging Lab and professor of neuroscience. Is that correct? That's correct. Fantastic. I want to thank you so much for calling into the show. I'd like to have you back another time because there's so much to talk about. Uh, Again, uh, Dr. Walker's book is Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and speaking the good word of sleep. I so appreciate it. Wonderful. Have a great day. If you missed any part of Dr. Walker's segment on sleep, why we sleep, uh, all you have to do if within an hour after I wrap is visit the show blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. We'll take a mini break, and then we will be back. 